turning again tonight to another of the I Am statements from the lips of Jesus, this time in John chapter 11 and verse 25. John 11, we're actually going to begin reading all the way back in verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. If anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, so that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him? 
But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. And Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Father, we pray that as Lazarus heard the voice of Jesus, even in the sleep of death, that we tonight would hear his voice and come forth and follow him. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We read a number of verses, of course, and I suppose that there may be a dozen or more valuable and vital points that could be made from this memorable passage in the life of Jesus. But since we're focusing our studies on Jesus' I am statements in particular, I want to draw your attention this evening to just four items, all of which are illustrated by the passage as a whole, but all of which are summarized, I think, by Jesus' great statement in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. The first point that must be gleaned from those words is simply the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ. Now we've lingered over this point, that the fact that Jesus is very God of very God. We've lingered over this point at significant length already in this series. So I don't want to camp out here for long tonight, but it seems to me that we can't read John 11, 25 and 26 We can't read this amazing statement of Jesus without pausing at least for a moment or two to consider how daring a statement it actually is. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Can you imagine the weight of that statement as the people first heard it? Can you imagine someone walking up to you and saying that to you today? And what would you think of such a person if they did that? If someone came to you and said, I'm the resurrection and the life. I hold the keys of eternity in my two hands. It's an amazing statement. One thing, says the commentator J.C. Ryle, is very clear and plain. None could use this language but one who knew and felt that he was very God. None could use this language but one who knew and felt that he was very God. Ryle goes on, no prophet or apostle ever spoke this way. Now there were prophets and there were apostles who raised individuals from the dead, weren't there? Just as Martha was hoping Jesus might do here in Luke 11. 
She knew her brother would rise again someday in the final resurrection, verse 24, but she was hoping that Jesus, like the prophets of old, might go ahead and grant him new life here and now. And Jesus, as we read, was more than happy to oblige her wish, not simply because he loved Lazarus and he loved Mary and he loved Martha, but, verse 4, Jesus was happy to grant her request because he wanted to prove a point about himself. And the point, verses 25 and 26, was that not only could Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, but that Jesus would someday raise everyone from the dead who believes in his name. That's what he says in those two verses, isn't it? Jesus will someday raise everyone from the dead who believes in his name. Lazarus was just a symbol of a far greater power. So sure of Jesus' ability was he, in fact, that he actually called himself the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection. I am the life. I hold the keys to life and death in my hands. And, says Ryle, a man can only talk like that if he is sure that he is very God. Now, sometimes it is asserted that Jesus was just a prophet or a good teacher, isn't it? Occasionally, we may even hear someone say, well, you know, maybe Paul or Peter claimed that Jesus was God, but I don't know of anywhere that Jesus himself actually claimed that. And some of us might be stumped by that kind of objection to historic Christian orthodoxy. A few of us may even find ourselves tempted by that kind of objection so that doubts begin to arise in our minds about the validity of our faith. But consider the words of John eleven twenty five carefully. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Surely no mere man would dare take those words on his lips. And if a mere man took those words on his lips, he would be no good teacher, quote-unquote. He would be a madman, wouldn't he? We would need to check him into Longview. No mere man, unless he was a crazed megalomaniac, would claim to hold the keys of eternal life in his own hand, would he? Because to claim that would be to herald oneself as God come down out of heaven. And yet Jesus makes such a claim, doesn't he? He makes it forthrightly. He makes it boldly. He makes it in no uncertain terms. I am the resurrection and the life. So either Jesus is a madman or he's no mere man. But either way we interpret Jesus' words, whether we think he's a lunatic or whether we think he's very God of very God, it is wholly impossible to claim that Jesus himself saw himself as anything less than God made flesh. And to show you that Jesus was right about that, to show you that Jesus is and was no madman, I refer you to the rest of John 11 and to John chapter 20 as well as reminders that Jesus not only said I am the resurrection and the life, but that he demonstrated it by the power of not one, but two stones rolled away, two empty tombs, two sets of grave clothes abandoned, both Lazarus's and his own. So that's the first thing to notice tonight in John eleven twenty five. Once again, the deity 
of Christ. But secondly, Jesus' words, I am the resurrection and the life, highlight for us the reality of the resurrection. The reality of the resurrection. All throughout history, from Jesus' day until now, and from both those inside and outside the supposed people of God, there have been men and women who doubt and sometimes even scoff at the idea of a bodily resurrection after death. You'll remember, perhaps, that in Jesus' own day, there were diverging opinions on this matter. On one hand were the Pharisees, who, for all the ways that they were wrong about Jesus, were right about this question. The Pharisees did believe in life after death. They did believe in the resurrection of the body. But their theological antagonists, the Sadducees, thought such ideas were pie in the sky. But it wasn't only the Sadducees who disbelieved in man's bodily resurrection. You may recall that in the church at Corinth, in the church at Corinth, there were those, 1 Corinthians 15, quote, who say there is no resurrection from the dead. And Paul, in his letter to them, combated that false teaching strongly saying if if people aren't raised from the dead, then even Jesus isn't raised from the dead. And if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then we're liars and your faith is vain. Paul was also laughed at by those outside the church. You remember in Acts 17, he was preaching there at Mars Hill. And when he got to the end of the sermon, he began to talk about the resurrection from the dead. And the people sneered at him in those learned circles of ancient Athens. And it continues down to this day. There are Sadducees within the so-called Church of Jesus Christ, theological liberals who disbelieve any number of things that the Scriptures teach, including the resurrection from the dead. And then there are those outside the walls of the church who would sneer at a sermon like this one with this talk about Jesus raising someone from their tomb. And questions about the resurrection of the body then may be put to you. They may come in the scoffing tone of the Sadducees, or they may come with the sneers of the people, the elite in Athens, or you may be asked, or even ask the question yourself earnestly because you're really wanting an answer or your friend is truly desiring the truth. You may ask or hear a question something like this. Could it really be that human bodies who have been dead for hundreds of years and whose decomposition has left them scattered into millions of broken down particles of dust, dust, many of which particles have been sucked up as nutrients and turned into flowers and trees and apples and grass and so on. Can it possibly be that someday all of those particles are going to come together and form themselves once again into something resembling a human body? No matter how that question is asked, whether it's asked honestly or haughtily, I have to admit it's a challenging question, isn't it? We can't fathom how this can be. And some of us may have wrestled with this question and even had a few doubts occasioned by it. And I fully admit that I cannot picture, I cannot explain, I can't really even fathom how this might actually work, that bodies that have been dust for centuries will recompose and rise to their feet to live forevermore. I don't understand that. But such questions are only occasion for doubt if we forget the power of God. 
With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With God, the gathering together of a million particles of dust to remake your decayed body is no great thing, is it? After all, he's God. Thomas Boston, one of my historical heroes, put it like this regarding the resurrection of the body. If it be objected, he says, how can men's bodies be raised up again after they are reduced to dust and the ashes of many generations are mingled together? Scripture and reason furnish the answer. With men, it is impossible, but not with God. Can men make eyeglasses with ashes? And cannot the great creator who made all things of nothing raise man's body after it is resolved into dust? I love that statement. Can men make glasses with ashes? And cannot the great creator who made all things of nothing raise man's body after it is resolved to dust? In other words, if mere men can take millions of particles of sand and soda ash and bring them together to make perfectly smooth lenses that enable me to see the words of John 11 on the page in front of me tonight, how much more can God do? I find that a very compelling answer for those who might be tempted to doubt the possibility of a literal, physical resurrection of the dead. But tonight, we have more than just the astute reasoning of Thomas Boston. Tonight, in John chapter 11, we have both the words and the works of Jesus himself. If we wrestle with the possibility of the forthcoming physical resurrection of the dead, if we struggle to believe that it could actually be true, we must look no further than John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And we must simply take Jesus at his word. And it's quite a strong word too, is it not? Jesus doesn't just say, I give the resurrection, I cause the resurrection, I grant the resurrection. All these, those things are true, but Jesus says something more. He puts it more strongly here in verse 25. Not just, I'm the giver of resurrection and of life, but I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus takes the physical resurrection of the body and turns it into a title for himself. Isn't that awesome? I can't think of a more forceful way that Jesus could have asserted the truth of the bodily resurrection than the way he does here. I am the resurrection. And if Jesus believes that our bodies will rise from the dead, so do I. And let me remind you before we leave this point that Jesus not only believed in the resurrection from the dead and not only claimed to be able to effect it, but once again, as I said in the last point, he actually did it both in this chapter, verses 43 and 44, and from the inside of his own lonely tomb. Both miracles are amazing, aren't they? Remember, Lazarus had been dead four days. He had begun to decay. And yet Jesus was able to re-energize his body with the power of God and bring him to life from the dead. And if Jesus can reverse the breakdown of those molecules in Lazarus's rotting body, he can and will do the same for all who believe in his name. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And, and Jesus himself Proved that that was true in his own resurrection, didn't he? 
And an even greater miracle. Now, we're told in the New Testament that Jesus' body did not suffer decay like Lazarus's. It was a, a different sort of situation, and yet it was an all the more amazing miracle. Jesus himself, who had borne all the sins of all God's people for all time and been crucified by Rome and laying in the tomb for three days, rose again, demonstrating himself to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And because he rose, we rise. He is risen from the dead so that all who believe in his name will live even if they die. So we've seen two things so far in this phrase, I'm the resurrection and the life. We have confirmed from the lips of Jesus the deity of Christ and also the reality of the resurrection. And then in the third place, Jesus' great I am statement here in verse 25 reminds us of the immediacy of the life. The deity of Christ, the reality of the resurrection, the immediacy of the life. We've been focusing on the resurrection thus far and rightly so. But note well that Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. And we may assume that that phrase, the life, is simply Jesus' way of referring to the eternal life that we will have after the resurrection. Simply Jesus' way of speaking about the life that we will enjoy someday in the future in the new heavens and the new earth when he returns. And of course, Jesus does mean that. He is the source the life that we will have there and then. But I'm not so sure that Jesus doesn't have something further in mind here when he calls himself the resurrection and the life. Something more immediate and near to hand than just eternal life there and then. In the latter half of verse 25, it seems to me Jesus explains, first of all, what he means by the resurrection. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. That is a patent description, isn't it, of what it means to rise from the dead. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. It's in the future tense. It speaks of what will happen once we die. But look at verse 26. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. That's a different sounding kind of statement, is it not? This verse speaks of an experience of life that is not only out in the future but also in the present. Do you see the difference between verse 25 and verse 26? Verse 25 speaks of a new life, a resurrection life that will take place after death. But verse 26 speaks of a person who's already alive and who will never die. To put it another way, verse 25 speaks of future life, but verse 26 speaks of present life that will carry on into the future. Verse 25, who who believes in me will live even if he dies. But verse 26, everyone who lives already and believes in me will never die. Verse 25 is only in the future. Verse 26 is present and future. And I don't think it's too much to suggest then that while verse 25 speaks of the body which will die and will be in the future made alive again, but verse 26 speaks of the soul which for those who believe in Jesus is already alive and will continue to be so on into eternity. Let me say that again. Verse 25, it seems to me, speaks of the body which will die 
and will be in the future made alive again. But verse 26 speaks of the soul, which for those who believe in Jesus is already alive and will continue to be alive on into eternity, even when our bodies die. Jesus then is not only the resurrection for the dead decaying bodies like Lazarus's, he's also the life, spiritual life, for believing souls here and now. I am the resurrection and the life. One in the distant future, verse 25. One in the immediacy of the present, verse 26. Life then, abundant life, eternal life, joyful life, meaningful life, does not merely begin when Jesus returns someday. It doesn't merely begin when you die even and your soul goes to heaven. If you're going to heaven... Verse 26, you live even now, spiritually. You already possess the spiritual life that will be yours when you get to heaven. You live now, verse 26, and that part of you that lives now, your spirit, your soul, will never die. Now, yes, it's true, the pleasure dial will be turned up when we reach heaven, won't it? So will the dial of holiness, the dial of spiritual sensitivity, and so on. Heaven will be the perfection of the spiritual life that is begun here on earth. But the point that I'm making tonight, and I believe one of the points Jesus is making, is that we don't have to wait for heaven for life to begin. I am the resurrection and the life. Present tense. We don't have to wait for heaven to experience true spiritual life. If we believe in Jesus, verse 26, we live now. Jesus as he cried out to Lazarus with a loud voice in verse 43, brought him to life, didn't he? And just as he cried out to Lazarus and brought him to life, so in the gospel he has called our names too. Steve, come forth. Roger, come forth. Mary, come forth. And when Jesus speaks a call like that to us, our souls do just what Lazarus' body did in verse 44. They come from the tomb of our sin, believing in his name, experiencing his fellowship, knowing his love, hungry for his word, loving his people, delighting in his presence, breathing out words of prayer, longing to be more like Jesus. That's what happens when we come alive spiritually, isn't it? And aren't those the very things that we'll be doing someday in heaven? It's just what Jesus says in verse 26. Heaven is not the beginning of life, but the continuation of that abundant life which has already begun now in seed form. We live now, and the part of us, the way that we live now, will never die. The fellowship, the delight the love, the holiness that are begun here and now continue on through eternity. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And someday, when Jesus returns, our physical bodies will be united with these never-dying souls, and so we shall always be with the Lord. I am the resurrection and the life. One is future and bodily The other is immediate and spiritual to all who believe. Maybe I should ask you and ask myself the question that Jesus asked Martha at the end of verse 26. 
Do you believe this? Do you really believe that eternal life has already begun for you if you're in Christ? Do you really believe that the Christian life is an abundant life, a full life, a joyful life? Now, I'm not using those adjectives in the the pie-in-the-sky fashion of Joel Osteen, nor am I suggesting that every day should be filled with spiritual rapture or that every quiet time should leave you melted on the floor in praise and in love. But the Christian life is a life of newfound joy, isn't it? It is a life of newfound purpose. It is a life where we have a new family, isn't it? Friendship with God and gladness in his presence and personal holiness are not just future realities for the Christian. They are present ones. Do you believe this? Or has the devil trapped you in his lies? Do you believe that in Christ your life really can be characterized by growing in likeness to Jesus? The kind of likeness to Jesus that will be perfected in heaven? Do you really believe that in Christ your life can be characterized by joy in the Lord and delight to be in his presence and regular conversation with him and a meaningful place in his family? I've come, Jesus said in John 10, that they may have life and have it abundantly. And Oh, I want to convince you tonight that that life is for you and that life is for today. I need to be convinced of it myself. Jesus wants us to walk in joy and peace and faith and purpose and nearness to God. The life that will continue in heaven in verse 26 is in a measure ours for the taking even now. Now again, hear me well. I understand and so do you that earth is not heaven. Indeed, earth is a far cry from heaven in so many ways, isn't it? But in our souls... There ought to be a little slice of heaven, even while we're on the earth. Because if we believe, verse 26, we live now. A kind of life, a quality of life that will never die. It's already begun. I am the resurrection and the life. So those few and powerful words draw our attention to the deity of Christ, the reality of the resurrection, the immediacy of the life, the abundant life that Jesus has purchased for his people. And finally, these words of Jesus draw our attention in the fourth place to the person of Jesus himself. The person of Jesus. We've been speaking a great deal, and rightly so, about what Jesus means by the resurrection and about what he means by the life. Those are important questions, important words to define, of course. But I want you to notice that Martha, at least, and especially on the question of the resurrection, had her doctrine just right. Verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha wasn't like the Sadducees. She wasn't like the men of Athens. She wasn't like the modern skeptics. She believed in the resurrection of the dead, and she believed, verse 22, that Jesus himself was the one who could affect it. God will do what you ask him to do, Jesus. God will give whatever you ask. But Jesus' statement in verse 25 indicates that though Martha knew about the resurrection and believed in it, though she knew about Jesus and believed that he was the one that could grant her brother new life, Jesus' statement in verse 25 indicates that there was still something more for Martha to learn. Jesus didn't want Martha simply to believe in the resurrection or even to stop at understanding that Jesus himself is the one who can effect the resurrection, he wanted her to understand that he actually is 
the resurrection and the life personified. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. You believe in the resurrection, you do well. But look, you're looking at the resurrection. I'm it. I'm the life. In other words, somehow, some way, beyond our capability to fully comprehend, Jesus is not just the source of these blessings that we've been discussing tonight. He actually is the essence of the blessing. Life, both abundant life and eternal life, is not simply a nebulous sort of object that Jesus is somehow able to harness and implant in human bodies and souls. No, life is not something that's out there. Jesus himself actually is the life. We understand this at least a little bit when we talk about our spiritual life here and now. If we have the new abundant life that we've been talking about, it's actually Jesus' life that has come to take up residence inside of us, isn't it? Enabling us to walk holy and enjoy God and speak to him in prayer and love the brothers and so on. I've come that they may have life, Jesus said, and have it abundantly, John 10 and John 11. I am that life. Or as Paul put it, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That is amazing and profound and challenging, isn't it? It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Jesus actually is the life of God in the soul of man. And so after all of our talk under the last heading about abundant life, we mustn't go out of here tonight focused on on obtaining abundant life. We mustn't go out primarily in search of joy or peace or faith or hope or purpose or love. We must go out of here tonight drawing near to the person of Jesus, for it is in him that all of the treasures of abundant life are hidden. He is the life. And if we will only draw near to him, if he will only dwell in us, spiritual life will surely grow and thrive within. And the same is true of the resurrection, is it not? Jesus not only says, I'm the life, but I'm the resurrection. I don't pretend to know exactly what Jesus means or how it can be so that he actually is the resurrection. It's one of the most difficult statements to understand in the Bible, I think. But he says it. He says in verse 25 that he not only grants bodily resurrection, but that somehow he himself actually is the resurrection, the personification of it. What does that mean? Perhaps he's simply referring to the fact, as Paul states it in Romans 6, that Jesus so identified himself with and united himself to his people that when he rose from the dead, we somehow rose from the dead too, even though we weren't even yet alive. Perhaps there's more to it even than that. But whatever exactly it means that Jesus is the resurrection, and I didn't find any commentator who knew for sure, the application, I think, is the same as what I just said about abundant life. We don't leave here this evening focused on obtaining the blessings of abundant life. We leave clinging to the hem of the garment of Jesus, knowing that he himself is the life, and that if we only have him, the rest will follow. And it's the same way with eternal life, isn't it? The marrow of the Christian life does not consist in trying to live forever, but in holding fast to Jesus. The essence of our faith, in other words, is not so much that we're pursuing a future reward, 
but that we are fellowshipping with a present person. If we know the person, if we have the person, we'll have the reward. But if we're only always salivating over the reward, we may turn it into an idol and actually miss the person. So instead of directly seeking the resurrection, verse 25, we must seek the I am who is the resurrection. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life.